Hello, and welcome to the seventh and final episode of our special AIES podcast series on US-Europe relations. For all our new listeners, this series focused on some of the major trends, developments, and challenges in the transatlantic relations, from the future of NATO to the fight against climate change, and featured high-level experts from the US sharing insightful perspectives from their side of the Atlantic. This podcast series was made possible in part through the generous contribution of the Austrian-American Partnership Fund. Today, we will talk about the West's preparedness for a possible next great war. And I'm delighted to do that with Dakota Wood, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, DC. Mr. Wood's research and writing focus on programs, capabilities, operational concepts, and strategies of the U.S. Department of Defense and Military Services to assess their utility in ensuring the United States has the ability to to protect and promote its critical national security interests. Mr. Wood serves as the editor for Heritage uh, Index of U.S. Military Strength, This is the only annual assessment available to the public of the status of America's military and its ability to carry out its core functions. Before joining the Heritage Foundation, Mr. Wood served in the US Marine Corps for two decades in different high-level positions from where he retired as Lieutenant Colonel in 2005. Welcome, and it's a great pleasure to host you today. I'm very excited to have this conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, yeah, I don't know how we cram everything we need to talk about <laughs> into a short period of time, but very excited to look, uh, look forward to the chat. And we have a very challenging title for our final episode, which is, Is the West Prepared for War? Now, in the presence of a global power, there is always a um, kind of a process of polarization. Uh, This process of polarization leads to the creation or emergence of a secondary center of power organized around a pole uh, consisting of a single competitor or a group of competitors uh, or rivals that seek to undermine the incumbent's global power supremacy. So to put things into perspective, A global reserve currency is not possible nowadays without the global power projection capabilities that enable the United States to control the interconnected flows of goods, capital, services, and data, and to protect trade and transport routes from disruptions that might result in major supply shocks or regional military conflicts. So my first question to you is, what is the current state of US military power? And does the United States still have global power projection capabilities? So the second part uh, to that in terms of global power projection, absolutely. I mean, even in the uh, crisis that currently exists in Afghanistan, you were seeing an example of the ability to take uh, strategic airlifters, C-17 cargo aircraft and deploy them hundreds, if not thousands of miles uh, pick up folks and equipment and then bring them back. And, and on a daily basis, the U.S. military 
really does operate on a global footing. You know, just like commercial airliners, we've got aircraft moving all over the place. We have U.S. Navy ships plying the waters of many different uh, distant seas and all. So, yes, there is this physical ability to project power. And, uh, and I think the United States uh, continues to be uh, fairly unique in its ability to conduct and to sustain military operations at great distances from the homeland. You know, most countries have a military force of some type and they operate either within their own country or very in very close proximity, right? Uh, whereas the United States surrounded by big oceans um, if you're going to do anything other than the North American continent, uh, you just have to go a very long distance. And it's due to foreign basing, alliances, and those sorts of things we're able to do that, hence the importance of partners and, and allies. As far as the first part of the question, you know, what is the status uh, of America's uh, military power? It's all relative, isn't it? I mean, you, know, you can have a whole bunch of very old equipment, uh, but if the enemy that you're fighting is equally ill-equipped or doesn't have as much, then you can still win through blunt force and through attrition and just outlast your competitor. If the competitor you're going against is very modern, you know, new equipment, well-trained, well, then it's a different sort of game. And, and so I think uh, the U.S. military is kind of caught in a both situation. It has a lot of old equipment that was procured in the 1980s and 1990s. But over the years, it's continued to try to improve that. You can have an old airplane, but it has a new radar system or it has more advanced weapons. And so it extends the longevity of that particular platform, right? At some point though, the platform itself, you know, the ship or the tank or the airplane uh, just doesn't have as much viability. And so you need to retire it and bring new things in. At the same time, we also have brand new equipment. I mean, you know, new munitions, new space-based capabilities, uh, improved ability to share information, which would make perhaps an older equipped force more effective than would otherwise be the case. So as we try to convey in this index of U.S. military, military strength that you mentioned, the U.S. military is, is a case of both. It has a lot of old equipment in dire need of modernizing, you know, being replaced with new sorts of things. And yet at the same time, it's very experienced. Uh, a lot of effort is put into training and readiness. Uh, it has a half a century or more of deploying outside of the United States and working with other militaries, you know, which is a set of experiences that really no other country has, especially at that scale. So on a one-for-one -one large combat sort of footing, we're still convinced that the U.S. military could win in that. The question then, which I think you'll probably get into, is can you do more than that? You know, it's a big world, you know, where the U.S. has interests that are challenged by Russia and China, which are, you know, in very different geographic settings. Uh, there's a Middle Eastern issue with Iran. And so how much of the U.S. military can be deployed and does it have the ability to conduct operations? And that's where we start to get into some serious questions. Also, we have a very fresh example in Afghanistan and we need to address this issue. Now, great powers have always tried uh, and failed to turn Afghanistan into a hotbed for their geopolitical ambitions. Uh, 
America is the latest superpower to suffer a kind of a catastrophic defeat, according to some expert, experts um, in this country, uh, following two decades of um, nation building and uh, military occupation. In my view, Washington's poor performance in delivering specifically major energy infrastructure and connectivity projects uh, has been one of the biggest failures uh, over the past 20 years uh, in this case. Now, meanwhile, Beijing is carefully preparing to fill the void left by the United States. Will Afghanistan change the balance of global power, in your view? And what role do the transatlantic allies, allies and particularly Europe play in this case? I don't think that China is going to be any more successful than the United States or Russia. If we go back to the 1980s, um, because the expectations are often divorced from the realities on the ground. Uh, so one aspect of this military involvement for 20 years on the part of the United States, I think was a misread of what military power can actually accomplish. You know, I mean, what is a tank or an, air, or an airplane or a soldier? What can they actually do, which is a different set of things than what economic initiatives do or what diplomacy can do or cultural exchanges you know, or the cultural basis for a people and how they relate to each other and to other peoples beyond their borders. So military power, my read of history and my own experience, is it can create a space within which other things occur, but it can't replicate or do those other things if the relevant institutions aren't effective on both sides of the discussion, right? So if the Afghan people or their power structures uh, their own interests and abilities and in, in, in doing their own security environment. And by that, I mean, even local police, you know, if the average Afghan citizen is routinely having to pay a bribe to the local police in order to go about their business, well, there's not a whole lot that the U.S. military can do to change that dynamic. And so where we saw missteps on the part of the United States over this 20 year period, is going in with a military security purpose to get at Al Qaeda, uh, who had conducted the terror attacks in you know, way back in 2001. But then there was this, this vision of transforming Afghanistan into a pseudo modern sort of society and country and you know, its economic productivity. And it's just a, a much larger challenge. So the military component can help to create, again, a space within which these other activities occur. But if the culture and the country and its political processes aren't tuned and, and prepared to do that, then, you know, it, it becomes a problem. And so I think what had happened over the last, say, four years um, is an appreciation that the U.S. could sustain a military footprint in Afghanistan at very low levels to kind of go back to its security concerns, you know, counterterrorism operations, keeping an eye on various terror groups and bad things that might occur in that region. And the region there's has been this historic focus in Afghanistan, it's right there at the heart of Central Asia. And so in the modern context, you have Pakistan, you've got uh, the Central Asian republics from the former Soviet Union, you have Iran, uh, you can kind of keep a geostrategic eye on what's going on in China. And so, I mean, if you're not there in the region, then you're kind of guessing. 
but but people had lost focus. So just as Russia tried to impose its will in Afghanistan, China now wants to take advantage of the economic opportunities of strategic minerals and those sorts of things. They will also be challenged because the local culture and the local tribal entities and power structures just don't want to be pushed around. And unless you're going to invest your entire military in this very landlocked, mountainous, rugged, uh, austere environment, you know, to create and sustain your own reality, I, I think it is, it's just always going to be fraught with frustration and loss and a lot of expense that doesn't result in the things you're trying to get in the first place. You also argue in one of your latest uh, works um, uh, that in an event of a major conflict, America would pretty much have to rely on its own military resources. And what it has to rely on is a shadow of what it had. Why are America and its allies not prepared for the next great war in your view, as you claim, or are they actually prepared for the next great war? No, they're not prepared at all. I mean, we've had, since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, we've had 30 years of relative peace and prosperity. You know, everybody's making money. The IT sector, information technology sector uh, has just exploded. I mean, people have been able to do things without the worry of some kind of a, a, a global nuclear exchange you know, or massive warfare on the European continent between Warsaw Pact and NATO countries. And so that tended to focus people on these very big security, existential in the true sense of word, sorts of challenges or threats. Well, once the Soviet Union went away in the, in, in, in the early 1990s, and then throughout that decade, there was no globally capable China. I mean, it just wasn't the economic powerhouse that it is today. You didn't have a nuclear North Korea. You didn't have an Iran that is near nuclear and trying very hard to get there, right? So it was just a different sort of world. And so that the compact, the agreement between governments and their people leveraged that, took advantage of it, you know, where you um, have subsidies from governments in many countries around the world, you know, Europe in particular, let's say, uh, in the United States, who needs this massive military that was that was needed during the Cold War? And so even in the U.S. during the 1990s, there were dramatic reductions in the capacity and the modernization of U.S. forces because it was just this fanciful notion that was easily dismissed. We'll never go to war with another great power. It's too destructive. Everybody is too economically interdependent. You know, why would a China, for example, try to take Taiwan by force if there were going to be economic repercussions from that, right? And so it's imprinting our values or our way of looking at risks and benefits on a competitor who may have a very different calculation as to what they want to do. And so over time, forces shrink in size and in numbers, they continue to age, and you just haven't had to deal with any consequences. So for the United States in particular, uh, given what occurred on 9-11 and the U.S. decision to go into Afghanistan, who were you fighting? Uh, the enemy had, the Taliban had no, or Al-Qaeda had no Navy, no Air Force, no heavy armored you know, formations. When the U.S. administration at that time decided to go into Iraq in 2003, 
the Iraqi military had lots of equipment, but very poor leadership, no effective tactics, you know, no cohesion. I mean, it just kind of collapsed in various ways. So the United States could conduct military operations unopposed from the point of debarkation uh, in or embarkation in the United States to go anywhere you wanted to in the world. And those supply lines, you know, the logistical support measures were never challenged in any meaningful way. Uh, complete control of the air, you know, no credible anti-air threat. Um, our, our Navy uh, capabilities were never challenged at sea. So it breeds this mindset that you can do anything you want anywhere in the world with relatively low losses in terms of killed and wounded, you know, we compare it to big wars in the past. And so it just shapes how people think about military power. And so we've tracked what's going on in Europe, for example, you know, for Germany, I think it was what, two years ago, no deployable operational submarines. You know, they were having to contract to civilian aviation companies so that the military helicopter pilots could get into a working helicopter in order to keep their flight hour certification up. Uh, the British Royal Navy is an absolute shadow of its former self. They could have something like 17 surface combatants. Uh, you know, its Royal Air Force is, is almost irrelevant. I mean, in terms of big war sorts of things, you know, Spain doesn't spend anything on its military. You know, it was a national event for the Italians to deploy a single battalion to uh, Afghanistan, you know, when, when they were involved. So when we look at the numbers of capabilities and the age of the equipment, readiness of forces, what they're actually able to do in a real world situation. It is nothing like what countries fielded back in the Cold War. And yet you look on the other side of that contest and what has China been doing? I mean, China adds uh, the equivalent of another country's Navy to its own Navy every year or two. <laughs> I mean, you think about that, right? Iran has the largest ballistic missile inventory in the entire Middle East with long range missiles that can reach the, the center of the European continent. I mean, why would Iran need a missile that can range that far, right? And so we see these developments with these hungry countries that are investing huge amounts of capital in their military capabilities. And we don't see anything that mirrors that on, on the Western side. And, and on the Western side, I would include Korea and Japan and you know, other countries you know, coming along that would be in that grouping. So when we think about big war, where people normally go is it's all gonna be space-based, it's all gonna be cyber and robots or artificial intelligence. And you never hear talk about armored formations or aircraft or you know, navies sinking other, you know, the ships of other navies. And so we've just lost that sense over 30 years of relative peace of what war actually means. And, and, and you know, it, it'll break out. I mean, the history of the United States, the history of the world is you have big wars every couple of decades or so. Uh, and we're just not ready for that, you know, mentally, societally, culturally, politically, or in our uh, defense investments. You also outlined that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, among others, have invested heavily to modernize uh, their forces and equip them with the most up-to-date technologies. Um, and against this background, do you think that China and Russia could pose a multi-front challenge to the United States and NATO at some point? China and Russia uh, have historical enmities. I mean, you know, they've historically been competitors. 
Uh, Russia has been concerned about Chinese movements economically into the Russian Far East. So these are not friends. But if you have a common competitor in the United States, for example, uh, there will be um, alliances of convenience. And so, yes, I do think that one could leverage an opportunity where the other actor ties up the United States in some way. Or let's say if Russia decided to actually create kind of a land corridor through Belarus and Lithuania to connect itself to Kaliningrad, uh, you know, what would the European response to that be? Uh, you know, we haven't seen any real response to Russia seizing Crimea. We haven't seen any real serious response to Russia moving into Ukraine. Uh, and so it, it, it catches these governments flat-footed. So if something serious along those lines or more so occurred in Europe, uh, wouldn't that be a great strategic opportunity for China uh, to decide to uh, surround Taiwan? I don't know that you'd actually have to physically invade, although that's a possibility, or to create more islands in the South China Sea or to seize disputed islands uh, from Malaysia or the Philippines or you know Japan or what have you. And so if you're the United States, you're from a U.S. perspective, if you don't have as much military force capacity to deploy globally in more than one theater, it presents a real, real problem. And I think this is an exploitable shortfall or vulnerability that certainly the capitals in Moscow and Beijing are looking at. So the potential is there. Uh, we in this business will often talk about deterrence. Well, what does deterrence really mean? Isn't that in the mind of the country or the person you are trying to deter? you know, that their calculation is that you have the ability to prevent them from, see, you know, achieving an objective or that the pain or the cost uh, is much greater than the benefit that they're trying to, to gain through this military action. <clears throat> so if they assess that you have fewer capabilities or a lack of political will or seriousness, then their calculations may lead them to conclude that this deterrent value is much, much reduced, thereby incentivizing uh, you know, predatory or aggressive you know, sorts of actions. So whether China and Russia would actually collaborate in an active way or achieve the same effect, you know, just opportunistically, uh, I don't know that, that it really matters. You know, the, the point is, is what physical military capabilities do NATO member countries possess? Are they willing to use those, you know, at risk, right, of loss uh, or conflict? Uh, what does the U.S. Uh, what can the U.S. count on, uh, or does it have to go it alone, right? So even in Afghanistan, which is this is great reference point, many countries contributed forces, but the forces contributed were often bound by rules of engagement or restrictions about what those forces could actually do in country. They couldn't leave the base or they weren't able to operate at night or they could do kind of a humanitarian or training sort of thing, but they too couldn't you know, participate in combat action. Uh, perhaps the forces couldn't even get to Afghanistan. And so the US then would provide that strategic airlift and then a lot of supply support, you know, the logistical support to keep them in place. So there is some contribution politically or diplomatically, but it also incurs a cost or a burden in, in supporting that. I mean, it's just the reality of, of what occurs in these various theaters. And if you remember not too many years ago, France led this effort uh, to uh, depose the Gaddafi regime in Libya. 
and it very quickly became apparent that absent U.S. support for airborne command and control, uh, aerial refueling, and precision munitions, uh, that military effort wouldn't have lasted more than four or five days. So we have these punctuations in the real world that really reveal some of the realities of military power. And the analysts then would look at that and try to ascertain how might Moscow or Beijing be looking at those things. And have we created an incentivizing, uh, you know, exploitable sort of uh, set of conditions uh, that are not in the long-term interests of the West? The global system also reveals an emerging network of regional actors with limited power projections. You already um, pointed uh, this out. Uh, and these uh, middle powers uh, or regional actors with limited power projection capabilities seek to navigate the systemic rivalry between Washington and Beijing. Among the main protagonists are countries such as Russia, India, Japan, Canada, key European states, uh, Australia, and a few other relevant regional powers. Uh, following COVID-19, they have one thing in common, to play a kind of a balancing act between the United States and China without getting caught by the difficult choice of uh, taking sides. Are, in your view, new military alliances and uh, defense partnerships emerging, uh, for instance, in the Indo-Pacific region or in other regions following the global power shift, or are we going back to the classic, to the traditional alliances and uh, defense partnerships? Well, I think I think countries react to stimuli, right? So if, uh, for instance, in the Indo-Pacific, if China were not as large uh, an actor with this very expansive navy. I mean, you know, the the the, the production or the shipbuilding uh, leading to the growth of the Chinese navy over the last ten years has been dramatic. Uh, the recent revelation of their new ICBM uh, intercontinental ballistic missile fields, uh, three of them now, what over three hundred, uh, I think, silos uh, that are being constructed. Uh, if you put a, a, a nuclear-tipped uh, missile in there that can carry up to 10 warheads, uh, you're talking about a jump from just a, a few hundred warheads to, to nearly 4,000. I mean, it is, it is amazing the building spree that China is on to improve its power projection sorts of capabilities. So I bring that up because prior to this, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, Australia, other countries, the Philippines, other countries in that region wouldn't have had to have been as concerned. And so their alliance structure or lack thereof, you know, their tendency to kind of go things unilaterally or independently, you could continue that uh, and just uh, content yourself with economic trade and uh, you know, how many container ships were you building and, you know, who was the central supplier of electronics and those sorts of things. But with China, very much more expansionist and more aggressive in uh, sending its fishing fleets into, into the, the fishing waters of other countries, their exclusive economic zones, their uh, maritime militia, Chinese Coast Guard, you know, with bumping incidents against Vietnamese fishing vessels, you know, those, those sorts of activities. Um, uh, uh, creating a physical presence on islands that are claimed by other countries, 
those countries now have to respond to that provocative behavior. And so we find today that uh, diplomatic or, or diplomacy is different, political decisions uh, are different, the willingness of various countries to kind of work together and sharing information and uh, military exercises is different today than it was, let's say, five or 10 years ago because of this stimuli. You know, if, if Russia wasn't as aggressive in uh, sending its airplanes in the airspace of Norway and you know, Sweden or um, really militarizing the Arctic North, would we see as much attention by Northern European countries and the activities of Russia? So it's a very dynamic environment and national policies will adapt or change based on how that environment is changing. So I think that there are new arrangements possible today that weren't possible 10 years ago. And this is spurred by the activities of these big countries, you know, Russia and China in particular, or what might Iran's, I mean, uh, Israel's policy be? Uh, look at the Abraham Accord, uh, where other countries in the Middle East now have formal diplomatic relationships with Israel, uh, not because somebody thought that that was just a great idea you know, absent any external influences, but because of the militarization of Iran and the development of its ballistic missile capabilities, support the Hezbollah and Hamas and other groups, its involvement in Yemen. Um, so again, this dynamic environment and a recalculation of security threats or security challenges that threaten the economic viability or the sovereignty of these various countries cause people uh, and leadership uh, positions to do things that they would not have done before that event occurred. A final question uh, is related to the future. Given the uh, Biden, Biden's administration's priorities in the field of uh, security um, and defense uh, policy, what are the prospects for the transatlantic cooperation and what in your view would be Europe's role? Um, I think people are, um, have been surprised that raw military power and naked aggression are still a feature of humanity. You know, that um, on the liberal side of the political spectrum, I'm not talking party or anything, I'm just talking political philosophy and all, uh, you would prefer uh, diplomatic outreach, you know, political discussions, cultural exchanges, economic activity, and somehow or other, there's a thought that we have gotten past uh, 20th century or 19th century or 15th century, uh, you know, saber rattling and, and just, you know, the use of military power. And what we see is that's just not the case. You know, that the, the, the security element, the military element is still very much in play. Uh, witness again, Afghanistan, where you had the Taliban uh, with uh, AK-47, you know, military rifles and the ability to make roadside bombs. And yet, because they had the willingness to last and to continue this and to exploit aspects of, you know, corruption and these other sorts of things that we kind of talked about earlier, uh, they've defeated uh, in, in this, in this uh, sense that we're seeing unfold now, uh, a very large uh, modern power in the United States with satellites and missiles and bombers and ballistic missile submarines and all these other, you know, trappings of, of, of a great power, right? So this aspect 
of, of military stuff and the use of force to impose your will on somebody else uh, is still a reality in today's world, as advanced as everybody is. And as much as we might want to go to an enlightened state of philosophical truths and realities. So the role of Europe is to reassess its economic and energy dependencies on countries like China and Russia. I, I believe China is the largest trading partner for Germany. And I think it's the largest trading partner for the European Union. So if China is doing something in a negative sense, right, uh, how willing are governments in Europe uh, to uh, threaten the, the economic relationship where you've got factory workers and making cars and all these other sorts of things that you want to sell to the Chinese, you know, one billion person market. Uh, using Germany again as an example, if there was a national decision not to go down a nuclear power route and, and, and increasing dependency on natural gas, for example, and then Russia comes calling and says, oh, hey, we'll build a, yeah, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline or whatever to provide energy to your sector. <clears throat> well, you've you know, decided to choose a path where you will then be dependent on your energy needs on a country that probably does not have your long-term interests you know, uh, in, in heart, right? So I know that this is a very controversial topic. It's been up for debate, but these are just examples of countries allowing themselves to get into a situation where they become dependent on other countries uh, that really have an adversarial view of things, you know, whether it's rule of law or World Trade Organization sorts of structures or currency manipulation. I mean, anything you want to talk about. And we've got the same you know, issue here in the United States. Very capable military, but it's two thirds the size, in some cases, one half the size that it was 30 years ago. And you might have a very capable ship or airplane, but it can only be on one place on the planet at any given time. And if you lose it and you only had 10 ships and you lose one, that's 10% of your force. I mean, you know, so there's a numbers game involved here that, that, uh, that parlays into your ability to present a credible challenge that has deterrent value and that causes a competitor nation to think twice about doing something that might cause, you know, some kind of a friction or a conflict. So I think where we at now in capitals is um, a reluctance to admit realities, because if you admit that there is a problem, as we have been discussing, then it is incumbent upon you to try to solve that problem. And solving, for example, a military problem that has evolved over 30 years takes a lot of national treasure, and it takes a, a dramatic change in policies, and it causes a lot of angst in the relationship between government and population where, you know, how does that affect taxes? How does that affect government subsidies and quality of life and the risk of potential conflict? And, uh, and people don't like to address those sorts of realities because of what it calls upon them to do. So um, I just think the reality of, of world history and the nature of people and competition among countries is kind of coming back with a vengeance you know, to, to remind governments uh, around the world, uh, but you know, we're, we're in particular talking about here in the West, that uh, history isn't done with us and that we have made some poor choices collectively over the last few decades. And the consequences of that will be very costly, both in uh, people and in money. So this was the final episode of our special AIS 
podcast series on US-Europe relations. And my guest today was Dakota Wood, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, DC. Thank you very much for your excellent insights and for your contribution. I really appreciated the opportunity. I wish we were ending on a more optimistic note, <laughs> but perhaps if there is a positive takeaway, it's just a, a reminder for people, you know, and for governments that if you're serious about your own future and you want to provide, a, you know, bright opportunities for our children and those sorts of things, you just have to be realistic in embracing the world around you. So hopefully this is an entire uh, learning experience for us, you know, at national levels. And uh, I'm just so glad we had this opportunity to chat about it. And, and again, thank you for having me on. And for our listeners, feel free to check out the Index of U.S. Military Strength 2020. This was the latest publication, and I suppose this year the new yeah. publication is coming out? It is. So we'll release on October 20th. Uh, it'll be the 2022 index, uh, but we're reviewing the year 2021. So October 20th, heritage.org slash military. Perfect. Thank you very much.